Welcome to Paint Ed. PCA provides painting contractors with connections they need to grow their business. To find out more and to become a member, visit PCAPainted.org. Find more great content like this on PCA Overdrive. A subscription to the platform is included with membership. For all of you non-members out there, sign up for a free trial. PCA Overdrive is available on the App Store and Google Play. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Contract Revolution. This is episode three of the Wealth Builder series. On the last episode, we talked to Kyle Green about all things real estate financing. And this week, we're going to speak to another fantastic guest about the investment side. Justin Bontkiz is the founder and principal of Caliber Projects, a construction management and general contracting firm working on some of the most exciting real estate developments in British Columbia. In many ways, Justin is the perfect case study for how contractors can build wealth through real estate investment alongside their core operating business. Like a lot of you, he started on the tools, worked his way into project management, then started Caliber, and in just 14 short years, Justin has gone from a bags-on framer, flipping houses on the side, to leading Caliber's team of 85 and building over $150 million in low-rise and high-rise projects in 2023. Through a dedication to constant learning and an eye for undervalued real estate, Justin has grown an award-winning company and amassed personal wealth, security, and freedom for himself and his family. And in today's conversation, Justin breaks down why, for contractors at least, the concept of diversification might actually be a bit overrated, how to avoid killing the golden goose by taking your eye off the ball with your core operating business as you endeavor into real estate. And lastly, he takes us through his personal investment strategy, how he analyzes land deals, and where he seeks to add value to properties and force their appreciation. So without further ado, let's dive in with Justin. You're watching Contractor Evolution where we unpack the systems, tactics, and skills you need to take your fast-growing contracting business to the next level. You're here to learn what it takes to scale up, work less, and increase profitability. You've come to the right place. Stay tuned to learn what separates the new breed of contractor from the old school, and welcome to your ultimate guide on the business of contracting. Justin, it's so good to finally have you on Contractor Evolution. How are you, my friend? Doing great. Thank you. Thanks for being here. So listen, you are a, a former Breakthrough Academy member. We worked together for a few years, a number of years ago. And your journey, um, you know, bo both on the construction side and the real estate side has been a really interesting one with a ton of growth. Do you, I, I think it'd be good for our listeners for you to just maybe lay out kind of your story day one to today. There you go. Day one to today. Well, I'll... um. I'll go back to uh, sort of what I thought I was going to do coming out of high school, because I think a lot of us as contractors kind of have an idea of what we want to do, but we don't really actually know. And, uh, you know, we, we, we start trying out a few things and then we kind of you know get pushed in a direction. And I think for me, uh, you know, coming out of high school, uh, I always thought I was going to be a tradesman. I wanted to work as a carpenter. Uh, thought one day, you know, I'd own my own business as a framing contractor and, and kind of work in the trades. And, you know, my dad said to me, he's like, well, you know, that's fine. You can do that, but you need to go get a degree first, mm. which was, you know, really good advice. I didn't want that. Of course, I just wanted to go work, make lots of money, buy cool cars and, you know, do all the things that, you know, kids pretty do. typical, but, you know, yeah, I received some sage advice from my father. And um, so I ended up going to BCIT, did the architectural building engineering technology program. Um, finished that after two years and 
you know, so I'm, what am I, I'm, I'm 19, just about 20, finishing that and, you know, realized that I'm still just a kid. So I ended up going back to BCIT the following September and uh, enrolled in the construction management degree program. And so um, finished the degree program, uh, you know, it's a little bit longer than the, the, the year takes a little longer and there's some extra courses and stuff. So it's not quite a four-year degree, but just over three years and uh, finished that up and, um, did some traveling, did the same thing that, you know, again, most kids do and come back and, um, got back into Vancouver in December and, um, it's December and I'm framing, I'm up on a roof, putting, uh, putting the sheeting on a garage and it's, um, it's minus two and it's raining. And like, that doesn't happen anywhere, but in the Fraser Valley, yeah. cause you know, normally it'd be snowing and then we'd have to go home. Right. And I'm no, the weather my... is uniquely disgusting in this part of the yeah, world. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, so I, I'm just back from, uh, you know, touring uh, Southeast Asia and, you know, not used to this cold weather. I'm like, this sucks. I don't want to do this. Uh, so that night, you know, I came home and I was looking online at different job applications. And there was a, a position uh, as a project manager for a townhouse site in uh, Abbotsford. So I grew up in uh, Langley here in the Fraser Valley. Abbotsford's not too far away. And, you know, so I'm a 21 year old kid. Um, you know, the application says five years of project management experience and all this stuff. And, um, I'm like, whatever, I'll apply for it. Uh, applied for it, got the job. Um, didn't have a clue what I was doing as far as project management went. I knew how to do construction, but, uh, you know, more on the, you know, the hands-on side sure. of things. But, um, yeah, I just really quickly learned to, to use the skills that I had as a tradesman and, and what I learned in, in school and, uh, was able to, to take on the role and do really well with it. And, uh, you know, you kind of progress from there and, you know, it's building a townhouse site and then, you know, you're doing two townhome sites at once. And, um, when did you guys start was, caliber uh, projects? So I, I would have started that in 2009. So, so, you know, really quickly from, from working for somebody. So I spent a couple of years working for another business, which was actually really good because you learn the good and the bad and, and kind of how you want to build your own business. And then in 2008, we had the, the subprime mortgage crisis. Right. So um, for, for those of, of you in the U.S., it, it hit you a whole lot harder than it did in Canada. But basically what happened, I got laid off from my job in 2008, couldn't buy a job for the rest of that year and then early into 2009. Um, so what I ended up doing is I took advantage of some some low priced building lots. So I was able to, to find a partner, someone who had some money who kind of believed in what I was doing and uh, we ended up buying three single-family home lots. Uh, so I was the uh, I was the architect. I was the project manager. I was the you know working with the realtor. I was the the, the carpenter, the laborer, the you know everything, um, building these three homes. Uh, and by the end of 2009, the market had come back. Um, so you know established Calver in 2009. Um, you know built a few homes. Uh, you know got really lucky with how you know the market changed. For us, I did really well on those homes and, you know, sort of started out from there. Just, you know, me and a pickup truck and uh, building homes and, you know, finished those three and, you know, built a couple more, started doing some renovations. You know, you, you build your own house and, uh, you know, you go from there. And, and, and so that's those are sort of the humble roots. And, and fa fast forwarding to today. Uh, so it's, to, it's like December of 2023. This is 14 years later. 
Do you want to maybe yeah. just talk about the size, the scope, the scale, the shape of caliber projects in terms of the type of stuff you're doing? Uh, in, you can, if you can share like some of the revenue you guys pump out, uh, how big your team is, um, just maybe give give the audience a bit of a sense for you know what you guys are up to. Fourteen years later, started with a couple homes that you bought, yeah. you know, after 08, and now now what you're up to. Well, you know, Benji. Uh Revenue is vanity, profit is sanity. Hey? So I can tell you right. all I want, but it <laughs> might not actually be all that good. Uh, no, so so when I was working for someone else, we were doing larger projects, uh, and I really enjoyed sort of the, the the aspect of running with a big team and you know the multifaceted construction design and 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 build approach. And you know when I was working on my own when I first started out, it was just single family homes. It was it was really simple nothing too complicated. And what I realized is actually that I'm not actually that good at carpentry. I'm not really a tradesman. I'm more of a, you know, a high level visionary business guy. And, uh, you know, you don't really realize that until you start, you know, you step into the waters of, of investment and, um, you know, trying to build a business. And so from 2009 to today, you know, you start out small, but I, I just wanted to get back into the bigger projects, right? So, mm. uh, started working as a general contractor myself, um, you know, building for other people, right? People were like, hey, you're kind of good at this. Like, why don't you do some stuff for me? And, you know, the projects just gradually grow, right? From small to big. And um, so obviously starting from nothing in 2009 to where we are today, um, we've got 85 employees. And in 2023, we will probably do about $176 million worth of construction. And what kind of stuff are you guys primarily building these days? So most of what we do now, and it's just a function of, of you know, a, a finite resource, which is land. They're not making any more of it. So what's happened for us is we've just begun to densify. So rather than building, you know, uh, one home on a one acre lot, uh, we're now building, you know, uh, low rise and, and, and high rise product where we're building, you know, anywhere from, you know, 100 UPA uh, and up. So units, homes per acre is, is what we call it. So. Um, the homes are a lot smaller, but there's a lot more of them and, and, you know, you're building a much more complex product for sure. So you're kind of a perfect case study then. Um, that's why we're having you on to really talk about this really complementary relationship between, uh, being a contractor, being a blue collar entrepreneur of some sort, whether that be a, you know, bona fide GC or you're a painting contractor or, uh, you know, your specialized trade, whatever, and real estate. And I just want your take on this very uh, sort of general open-ended question. Why do you think that these two things go hand in hand so well? Why are they so complementary? Yeah, well, so so the beauty of, of building homes for, for other people is you, you get to, you know, I always say, um, you, know, a, a, you know, a smart person learns from other people's mistakes, Um uh, sorry, a smart person learns from their own mistakes. A really wise person, really smart person learns from other people's mistakes, right? So I like to say I get to practice on other people's homes, right? So, you know, when it comes to real estate development and what we're trying to do ourselves, um, you know, we're taking all the information that we're, we're gathering from what other people are doing. And so, you know, early on when we were building single family homes for other people, we were also, you know, buying lots and building homes ourselves and selling them. And so you get you get a sense of, of what works well and what doesn't work. And uh, because you're, you're doing it for other people, you're also you know, working at scale, right? So you're able to, to bring on and attract larger subtrades that would, would normally not 
do work on, you know, uh, work for a developer that's you know, just doing one home at a time, right? So you're able to, to sort of build off that scale of economy. And I think too, like, um, you know, it's, it's either in you or it's not. Like some people are just really interested in product. Um, and, and so for me, you know, having that sort of understanding of how, you know, a, a, a project comes together, but also being really interested in the product itself, you know, I just like, I love building stuff and I love putting it together and I love seeing it, you know, come together. And, um, you know, in order to do what we were trying to do, you know, we had to make money at it too, right? So, you know, we're all in business to make money. It doesn't mean that we're, you know, it's all about that. But, you know, for me, I was able to, to take what I was learning and I was able to, to add that to, you know, the, the wealth that I had created and, and build and sell homes for other people while building uh, and selling homes for myself. And, you know, you're able to, to, to do that. Um, uh, like, you know, so there's, there's kind of two ways, right. You, you talk about how we get started with it. I mean, a lot of it comes down to just working on our own homes, mm. right. So, you know, we buy a home for ourselves, we renovate it, uh, we flip it, right. And we're able to add sweat equity to that process. And you're able to, you know, you live in the product that you build. So you're able to assess it at a different level than you would be uh, otherwise. And, um, you know, and you got to enjoy it too, right? Like if, if you don't like doing it, mm-hmm. uh, you're probably not going to be very successful at it. So, mm-hmm. but there's something about, I think, you know, the, the network that, that a contractor has, the tools that they have in their possession, the team that they've built, the knowledge that they have in their head, some of the propensities and skills are like really set them up to add that sweat equity in a more efficient and more effective way than say, you know, a, a doctor or, or, or just some other type of role in the economy. It's like, there's something you're uniquely positioned to do this. Well, it doesn't mean that you necessarily should, or you necessarily will, but you do have some assets. You have a, you know, your, your Delta, your Delta hand that makes you, I think, especially um, competent in this little, in this little vehicle, should you want to do that? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the old saying, it's, it's not what you know, it's who you know, right? So, you know, as someone who's in the trades, if, if you've got a, a little project that you're working on yourself, you're able to leverage those relationships, right? And, and, you know, depending on what it is, right, especially early on, it's like, hey, if you're a landscaper, uh, you know, and your buddy's a carpenter, uh, you know, you're not necessarily trading work for work, but you, you definitely are, are understanding, you know, what it takes to make it work. And so you're going to leverage those relationships. And, you know, if, if uh, like you said, a doctor goes and builds a house on his own, you know, he's got to hire a general contractor. Yeah. That general contractor is going to hire, you know, trades at full price. And, you know, before you know it, you're, you're paying significantly more than if you're doing it, you know, yourself as a tradesperson. So, yeah, absolutely. Like, like sweat equity is, is huge. So um, this is an interesting question. We This is a part of a longer series and we've had, you know, we, we've had some investment people on. I think we're going to have a few more on after this. Um, and there's competing philosophies when it comes to wealth building. A lot of people will be very pro-diversification. It's like, you know, uh, get your money into stocks and bonds or both, uh, you know, load up a mutual fund, load up your RSP, have it be, ha- you know, own assets in different geographies at different market cap sizes. Uh, and I think that there's merit to that idea, but there's also this scrappier, more DIY route to wealth building. And and I wonder what, I mean, I, I can kind of assume based on your story, but like, what is your thought on that, that sort of diversification piece? It's a great question, Benji. So 
I'll start off with it depends. It depends on where you're at in your journey, right? Like when you talk about being scrappy and a lot of times when we're scrappy, it's it's like, you know, you're bootstrapping, you're doing everything you can just to, to survive. And, you know, uh, you don't have a lot of money. So, you know, you know what are what value are you able to add? You're able to add, you know, hard work and, and, and sort of the skills that you have. Um, and so, you know, early on for me, um, you know, you're just you're just flipping dollars is, is really all you're doing, right? Like you, you, you do one project, you take the money that you made, you put it into another one, you flip it and, you know, you keep on turning it as many times as you can until, you know, you have a, a bit of an asset. And and while you do that and depending on the stage of your life and, and you know, the dependence that you have, you know, you, you have to be there is there is some prudence in how you sort of behave with that and, you know, making sure that you have some cash uh, left over for a rainy day or making sure that you have, you know, um, you know, a decent life. Um, um, what do you call that? Um, a lifestyle. Uh, no, um, life insurance. There you go. Life insurance. Oh. Making sure you got a decent life insurance policy, right? I mean, the last thing you want to do is over leverage uh, everything that you have for the future, right? So, but but what happens when we when we do create a bit of cash and we do have the opportunity to invest in different things? I, I think there needs to be a shift in how you behave, and um, you know, from my perspective, you know with regards to 401k RSPs, um, you know, mutual funds, you know, doing playing in the, in the stock market and things like that. You know, I, I always say don't invest in things that you don't know, right? Make sure you put your money in areas of expertise that you are familiar with. And I like for me putting money into an RSP, yeah, there's some tax benefits to it. Um, but where do I go from there? You know, I put it into a mutual fund, where a fund manager, you know, goes and manages it for me. And, you know, he takes a couple of points and, you know, before you know it, you know, the, the return is pretty dismal, you know? So from my perspective as a business owner, especially because we're able to do some, you know, you know there's some, some creativity in, in how you do it from a tax perspective, I'd strongly encourage you to invest in yourself, invest in whether it be your business or, or in real estate that you can tangibly um, build up and, and, you know, improve and, um, so from, from my perspective, like you just, you really want to be careful that you're not, you know, uh, giving away the opportunity to grow your own wealth. Um, now again, like again, there's prudence in that, like, you know, don't leverage every last dollar that you have within your organization. I mean, you need to have, um, you know, the necessary, the necessities to, to operate, but, um, yeah, you, if, if you really think about it, you probably do a much better job of creating wealth yourself than you would by giving it to a mutual fund advisor. When you leave the ball in your own hands and you, there is some prudence and there is some, you know, some, some thoughtfulness around how much risk you take and all that stuff. But if you leave the ball in your own hands, you're making the case that you can outperform the market year over year because you can kind of pump it with your own work ethic, your own smart, intelligent decision-making, your own network, the momentum that all that builds. And so you're kind of making the case that diversification is a little overrated when it comes to contractors building wealth. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm glad you brought up diversification. I mean, diversification is, there is wisdom in that, right? Um, you probably read any investment textbook and they're going to tell you not to put all your eggs in one basket. Um, again, just coming back to that, that, you know, don't invest in things that you don't understand. You know, if you can invest in something that vertically integrates with your business, Mm. And it's somewhat diversified. Great. Um, but, you know, if you're a, a contractor and you don't know anything about the retail business, you know, don't get involved in retail. Right. Right. Um, you know, beyond 
besides the fact that it will take away from what you're you're good at, right? I mean, you're going to end up spending time in this retail business that you don't any, understand anything about. It's going to take you away from your primary vehicle where you've actually you know you're good at. Um, you know, I just I really caution people from you know this diversification strategy that would have you putting you know money into all sorts of different things, and um, because it just it just you, you end up being spread too thin. And, and when you're spread too thin, what ends up happening is you end up starting to actually focus on the things that, uh, you're, that aren't going well, right? So if you've got a really good contracting business um, and then you put some money in a commercial business of some sort or retail business of some sort and the retail is not going well, all of a sudden you're spending more time on your retail business than you are on your contracting business, which is what helped you generate the wealth in the first place. This is a great segue into something that you that you said last week offline when we were chatting, which is this idea of like really keeping your eye on the ball, um, even when it comes to investing in real estate. And I, I wonder if maybe you want to unpack that that idea a little bit for us. Like, what have you seen in terms of contractors um, taking their eye off the ball and maybe getting it getting ahead of themselves a little quickly? Well, the, the beauty of, of having worked with Breakthrough Academy, uh, for me, you know, I started off this journey when I was, you know, obviously in, in my early, tw- when I was in my early 20s. And, and I really, I didn't know anything about building a business at the time, right? And so, you know, you get involved with Breakthrough Academy and they, they you know, they give you the tools that you need in order to be able to, to run a proper business. And, um, you know, for, for myself, you know, the last, you know, whatever that is, 14 years, you know, you're just hustling, you're just giving her like day in and day out. And, you know, you, you, you know, you might take a couple of breaks here and there, but you know, for the most part, you're just giving her every day. And I think what happens with a lot of uh, contractors is, is through their journey, you know, they, they eventually, they do make it and they do build some wealth and they get to a point where they're like, well, you know, I'm going to put some people in charge of running my business and I'm going to step away and I'm going to step away and I'm going to start, you know, investing in different things and, and, you know, um, and, and what ends up happening, and I think part of it is because guys get burnt out. Um, they've worked for a very long time at something and, 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 you know, the thought of, you know, continuing to do what they're doing at the level that they're doing it for the next, you know, 20 years is, you know, it's too much for them. And they're like, well, you know, I want to, I want to try something new, right? So they put their money into something else and they put people in charge of the business and they take their eye off the ball and it doesn't usually last well long, right? Like I think, you know, you talk about investments, um, you know, what, what we've done that's given us success so far, like we can't lose sight of that. Like we, we, we don't want to lose sight of where we came from. Right. And I, I, I shared this with you, Benji, when you lose sight of where you come from, you often get lost. Right. So, you know, we're talking about investing, but that doesn't mean pulling out tons of cash from your business, pulling out tons of resources, uh, you know, and specifically pulling yourself out of business. You know, what I'm talking about is making sure that the existing business, you know, I will call it the golden goose, the one that got you where you are, that you continue to take care of it and that you continue to build it so that, um, you know, it, it, it continues to generate cash. And, you know, when, when you're talking to different bankers about, you know, investing in things, they're going to look at your balance sheet. They're going to look at your income statement from your business. And um, if they see a, a cash flowing business that's you know stood the test of time, that's going to help you when it comes to pulling out cash. Um, the other the other beauty with it too, right? Like we're talking about investing for the future. Um, if you're able to build your brand as a company, as time goes on, you know the company becomes the product. It's not so much what you're building anymore or what you're putting together. It's the actual business and 
uh, you know, as time goes on, you're able to sell off parts of that, or maybe you sell the whole thing to somebody else at some point. And, you know, you talk about wealth generation. Um, it's a great way to do it. I think it's a really, really important point. And we're going to talk about strategies, how you think about deals, the stuff you buy versus the things you don't buy. All of that, all, all of that we'll, we'll, we'll get into here in a sec. But there's a caveat at the beginning, which is just like, don't abandon the thing that got you to where you are right now because you listen to some real estate investment podcast, you saw a friend get really rich doing this or whatever, um, mm -hmm. because it, it appears as though those moments really come back to bite you quite quickly. And yes, you may have, you know, you go and let's say buy three rental properties and you're feeling pretty good. And then the GM that you put in place in your business 18 months later, turns out he's a bit of a quack and this whole thing is now nearing bankruptcy. I mean, in the BTA universe, we've just seen this dozens, if not hundreds of times at this point. And so mm -hmm. I think it's like, this is all exciting and it's very cool and it's very fun. And you get to kind of put your real estate investor hat on. Um, don't do this too uh, into cavalier fashion and don't forget about, I like you, like what you said, like, don't, don't forget where you came from. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. what kind of things, um, if, if you're thinking like, here's a question, someone's listening to this and you know, they're maybe they, f they find your story inspiring or this, this maybe fits a, a narrative or a future that see that they see for themselves. Are there things that you could maybe speak to about like, um, what would make someone ready to do this in terms of their business? Like, does the business need to be at a certain size? Does there need to be a certain amount of free cash flow? Does there need to be, um, you know, a certain amount of, of a leadership team built so that the owner has bandwidth needed to do this? I mean, how does someone know they're ready to maybe take take this on? Well, I, I think it starts with with understanding what your your personal vision is, right? So. Uh, you know, you guys at Breakthrough talk about the painted picture, right? You you got you want to draw for yourself what your envisioned future looks like, right? And I think if you have a clear vision of what the future looks like, you want to build towards that. And if you're saying to me, hey, you know what, I want to get involved in real estate investment, and I want to do, you know, uh, have, you know, X number of investment properties or X value of portfolio or whatever it might be, you know, you don't just start that overnight. It's a process where you you build it up, right? So, um, you know, and, and, and you really got to look at, you know, what's your personal situation look like too, right? Like how, how you know, do you have children? What are the ages of your children? What what type of draw will they have on you? You know, are you able to work, you know, 50, 60 hours a week? Or or is it, hey, you know what? Like I can only do 40, 40, 50 hours a week because, you know, my life circumstances don't allow me to do that. And so depending on, on what your life circumstances will allow you to do, you start making decisions on, on what you can do outside of that with your business, your operating business, and then investments, right? Because I've seen too many guys, again, that are, are running an operating business and it's doing well, but it requires a lot of their time. Then they buy a piece of land. They don't do proper due diligence because they, you know, they just, they, they want to do it so badly. And before you know it, they bought something that doesn't, actually cash flow or or doesn't have any potential and now they're sitting on a lemon and i'll tell you like if you buy the wrong piece of land it can put you back years right i mean think about how long it's taking you to generate wealth within your business you know if you take that wealth, put it into something and it's stuck there for you know five six maybe more years um you know that that's not going to work out that well for you either so i just i just really would encourage 
anybody who's looking at doing this to make sure that you actually have thought it through, thought through how you're going to allocate the time required to do this. Yeah. Um, because, you know, it, it can be all encompassing. And before you know it, like, you know, you've got this asset, uh, you've got this business. And now, you, you know, instead of you running your business, your business is running you and, and, you know, it takes all the fun out of it. Like it's gotta be fun. I think maybe that's something that we haven't focused enough on uh, Benji. It's, you know, wealth, wealth is, is good. Um, but it can, it can be a real, it can be a blessing and a bane. Like it can be a real problem for those that, that don't know how to manage it properly. And, um, you know, there's, there's so many people, there's so many relationships that we have that have fallen apart over the years simply because we haven't managed our time properly. We've actually put our businesses and our investments ahead of, you know, what's really important in our lives. Right. So mm -hmm. just something to keep in mind, um, you know, when you're thinking, I want, you want to do this. That's a really great point. Give us a high level walkthrough of your investment strategy and and like what what has worked for you over the last over the last decade. I mean you talked about buying the wrong piece of land and that being a you know that that's something that can really set you back sitting on a limb and I mean that probably fits somewhere into your answer. Just what is sort of like the Justin Bonkis approach to uh, this whole exercise? Yeah. So, so for me, um, because I'm a contractor, uh, you know, when I talk about being vertically integrated with, with what we're doing, you know, for me, the, the investments that I have had to date typically have me improving the land, right? So I'm buying a piece of land or I'm buying a house, I'm renovating it or I'm building a new place and then I'm selling it. Right. So again, we talk about that vertical integration, you know, if you're a contractor and you can add value to a home, um, you know, might make a ton of sense for you to to buy something that, you know, you know, if you're a finishing carpenter and the finishing carpentry in the home that you're buying is really poor, great. You can add that value, you know, and then you can flip it or 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 you can, you know, hold on to the asset. You know, for me, um, and I do think it depends a little bit on the geography, right? So I'm here on the West Coast, uh, to buy a piece of land, especially in a high interest rate market, to buy a piece of land and have it cash flow is is almost impossible right now with with interest rates being what they are. I mean, the bank ends up making more money than you do on the thing. So for me, my strategy over the last 10 years has been to buy, um, build and sell. Now I'm, you know, transitioning in my career now where, uh, you know, looking more uh, intently at, at buying something where I can hold it, you know, have income producing properties. And, and so that, that will happen in tandem where I continue to buy, um, uh, build and sell. Um, but I, I think, you know, if you can turn your cash uh, and turn it quickly, um, you know, there's always going to be value in that, right? So, yeah. So oh, your your approach has been uh, much more about the appreciation. It's it's something that you want to buy, you want to improve, and then you want to sell for a gain. Um, yeah. What would can you can you maybe give us a little bit of a breakdown of of your kind of analytics on this. And I understand that this could be a total rabbit hole. We, we can't get into absolutely every cell of the spreadsheet. Um, yeah. But like, if you're looking at two deals, deal A, deal B, and you know, in your mind, deal A is a go, deal B is not a go, it's a red light. In yeah. terms of like first principles thinking, you can be really archetypal with your answer here, really high level with your answer here. Why is deal A a go and deal a, and deal B is not a go? Okay, so so something we haven't talked too much about yet, but there's you know investing your personal cash, like your your own um, personal wealth, and investing business wealth, and so you know investing personal 
wealth into, especially here in Canada, where I don't, I don't know how the tax laws work, you know, throughout um, you know, North America, but where we are here in Canada, um, we're able to buy a piece of land or buy a home. We're able to improve the asset and we're able to sell it and get a tax-free gain. Right. Right. So the metrics that you're using when you're doing that are going to be a little bit different than when you're trying to do it as a business. Right. Correct. So, you know, you're going to use your, your personal finances. You're going to get a, you know, a personal mortgage uh, and, and you're going to go from there. And the real win there is, is that you don't pay any taxes. Right. So, you know, if you're um, if you're doing it as a um, you know, if you if you work as a business, every dollar that you make, you know, you're going to pay uh, business tax. And then you're also going to pay a income tax. Um, so, and, and depending on you know where you sit on the income tax ladder, um, you're going to be paying anywhere from sort of thirty to fifty percent uh, on all, every dollar that you're earning, right? So, um, I would strongly suggest for those that are, are early on in their careers and and where where your lifestyle allows um, to utilize the opportunity to take your personal asset, improve it, flip it. Um, there are regulations around how often you can do that, but I, I strongly suggest that you do that. Um, when it comes to a business, again, it's, it's, it's totally different. And a lot of times um, what's going to dictate what you're doing in business is going to come down to, uh, you know, what kind of financing you can get through a bank, mm. right? So um, on the, the buy, build and, and sell model, typically for us as, as developers, we need to satisfy the bank's um, return on cash requirement, which is a 15% return on uh, cost, not cash, on uh, cost, right? So, you know, if you're going to buy a piece of land uh, or even, you know, a home and, and renovate it, um, you know, if you buy, um, um, you know, a, a house, uh, it, say it's an $800,000, you know, fixer-upper, um, you know, you're going to have to put, you know, I don't know, say three, $400,000 into fixing it up, um, you know, and this might be something that you're doing as a, as a, as a business or, um, you know, maybe you're doing, maybe you're doing it after hours with your brother-in-law. I don't really know how you're doing it, but if you're doing it as a business, you know, you, so you, you spend a million dollars or $800,000 on the, uh, home itself. You put $400,000 into it. It's 1.2 million. Um, you know, let's say you can sell that asset for, um, you know, 1.5, uh, million dollars once it's all done. Um, and let's just say that, you know, the real estate fees and, and commissions and everything are included in that, that $400,000 worth of cost. Um, so, you know, we're, uh, 800 plus, what did I say? 800 plus 400. So we're 1.2, we're selling it for 1.5. We got a $300,000 profit, mm -hmm. right? So $300,000 of profit on a $1.2 million investment. Um, you do the math, but, um, you know, whatever that is, um, you know, 25%, it's, it's going to work out for yeah. you. Uh, so, yeah. but you know, you, you want to make sure that whatever you're doing, you're, you're calculating the, the, the costs and the risks, uh, right up front. Right. So, I mean, that, that's the buy, build and, and sell model. Um, you know, then there's, there's also the, the cash flow model. And, and so, you know, whatever you're doing with cash flow, um, you know, it's really important that you have a, a model of some sort and there's, there's different resources out there that can help you kind of figure that out but a model that will help you put together a cash flow uh, for a piece of land prior to actually buying it, right? So put that together, um, you know, and if you can get that thing to cash flow, you know, uh, above say 10%, uh, 
um, you know, you're going to do pretty well with it. And, and the banks will actually look at that asset um, when you're trying to finance, you know, another home, like, right? So if you buy one, fix it up, um, rent it out, uh, refinance it, you know, you can do it again if it cash flows properly. And, you know, before you know it, you got two, three, four, five, maybe more uh, properties. And, um, you know, again, coming back to that operating business thing, like if you have a good operating business, you know, you may need to put some cash into those homes in order to make it work. Um, but I'll tell you, it's a heck of a lot better investment doing that than putting it into RSPs or, or 401ks. Is it the case that that more cash flow model, which is more or less like landlording, I'm going to buy a place, I might add a little bit yeah. of, I might add a little bit of, uh, I mean, they'll call this the Burr method, right? It's like buy, yeah. rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. This is from directly yeah. from bigger pockets. I think this is a pretty well understood framework. Most people would be familiar with it. Is it the case that that way of going about it? Um, is a lot easier in less inflated markets. Like it seems to be much more available in the States. Here in Canada, it's like the, the spreadsheets just don't work. Like the, the prices have just gone so ballistic and ballooned to a level that's totally inconceivable. Like there, this idea that I'm going to buy a place, I'm going to fix it up a little, I'm going to put a tenant in it. It's like you might do all that stuff and the thing still costs you 500 bucks a month because the rent can't match the cost of the cost of the lending. Well, I mean, for the most part, I think, think I think you're right there. The, the difference is not necessarily Canada versus the U.S. I think the di real difference is, is just the, the markets. And, you know, if you look at house prices on a map and you look at the prices between cities that are on the water or, mm -hmm. you know, on the East Coast or the West Coast versus, versus the ones in the middle, ones in the middle. I mean, that's that's a real differentiator. Right. So if you go to whether it be Vancouver, Canada, or Toronto, Canada, or New York, or um, you know Miami compared to in uh, San Francisco compared to something you know in the central United States, it's going to be a whole lot different. So it's it's not necessarily Canada U.S. It's really the proximity uh, of of the home to uh, you know water. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and do what you want with that because that you know that that might also apply to some some cities um, you know that have really nice, um, you know, lakefront views or, or, you know, whatever other attractions. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. It's a good comment. When you look at this sort of, uh, like you, I want to buy a place, I want to improve it. I want to sell it for more than I bought it for model. And you, you've brought up this idea of sweat equity, meaning I can add value to this asset at a, at a faster and more efficient rate than the market can add value. Should I invest it there? We're making a few assumptions, but let's just say they're right. In the ad sweat equity model, in your experience, looking at residential homes, this is just a good little use case. What boosts value? Is it is it kitchens? Is it bathrooms? Is it adding a garage? Is it paint jobs? Is it new flooring? Is it landscaping? I actually don't know. I'm really curious, like what your sense of like what the most cost efficient value boosters are uh, in someone that's trying to do this home flipping model. Yeah, I mean the first thing that I'll say, like like it doesn't matter what you do to the home if the house is in a bad location, right? So first thing, you know, what do they say? The the, the number one rule in in uh, um, you know, real estate is, is location. The number two rule is location. Number three rule is location and so on and so forth. So just make sure that whatever you do, you buy a home that's in a good location. So, and that could be, you know, proximity to uh, amenities or, or making sure you're not buying a home uh, where, you know, 
the, the wrong type of people have moved into the neighborhood because uh, it doesn't matter what you do to that home um, to fix it up. Uh, it, it's not going to sell. Right. So make sure you buy in a good location. Um, you know, Google actually has such a thing called a walk score now. Like it's actually pretty easy to get data uh, fairly quickly online on whether, you know, or whether or not your home is in a good location, hmm. proximity to schools, amenities, you know, hospital to employment, highway, you know, all sorts of different things. Um, so figure that one out first. Uh, second of all, when it comes to actually improving a home, you know, there's the classic, make sure that the kitchen and the ensuite look good, right? Because, you know, if, if uh, you walk into a home, uh, you know, husband and wife walk in there, uh, you know, typically, you know, um, you know, they're going to look at that kitchen and that ensuite and say, hey, you know, I can either live with this or I can't, right? So, you know, starting there and, you know, from there, like, you know, whenever I look at a home, I always want to look and make sure that the bones of the home are, are good, right? Like structurally, it's good making sure that, you know, there's, there's no major issues that you're going to encounter uh, along the way. Because, you know, most, most people buying homes nowadays are pretty sophisticated. Most of them are, are using, um, you know, home inspectors. Uh, you know, some people think, you know, you know I just got to cover it up and nobody will notice, but they'll, they'll typically find out, right? So, um, yeah, kitchen, bathroom, um, you know, I see a lot of people updating the roof, updating the, uh, you know, the siding, um, you know, those sorts of things. You know, I hear a lot of people are like, oh, you know, you got to update the windows and you got to update the doors. And, and, and while there, there's some validity to that, um, you know, you can start to spend a lot of money on some stuff that doesn't actually really matter that much to the purchaser or the potential purchaser of that home. Um, you know, paint, paint goes a long way, <laughs> right? So is there anything that you would categorize to sort of flip the question around? Like, are there, are there any things, upgrades to the home where you're just like, I would never do that. Like, it's just not something that you're going to get your money back from. Ooh, um, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I, I can't think of anything off the top that you would get no value from. Right. Um, I think when you are making decisions on, on what to spend your money on and what not to spend your money on, like I would advise working with a real estate professional, right? right. Like often we have our own sort of, you know, um, bias projects and, and, you know, you might think that it adds a ton of value. And if you're not sure, just, just ask someone, ask a real estate broker and say, Hey, you know what? Um, if I spend, you know, $15,000 on renovating the windows, for example, will I get $15,000 in value from that? Right. Um, so, you know, maybe yeah. you're a big TV guy and you think you need to have a theater Huge TV well, or you're a big rock garden guy. So you install a thousand yeah. dollar waterfall in the background, you're, you're, the backyard. You're probably not. That's probably not going to work its way out in the end transaction. You're, you're likely going to get caught holding the bag yeah. on some of these things in, in markets where uh, where where finances are tight, which is most markets right now. Um, if you're buying something and you're able to put a suite in it, mm -hmm. um, you know, that's you know, in addition to the kitchen and the bathrooms, um, that's actually probably the most valuable thing you can do, especially if you're buying it so that you can hold it and rent it. You know, if you could rent a home out for, you know, $1,500 and you could put a suite in it, you can probably increase that rent to, you know, I don't know, 22, 2300 bucks or, or more. Here's another question about, uh, you know, in, in, uh, you know, cost sensitive markets, which are all marketed which are pretty much all markets right now. Um, I think a lot of people find themselves in a situation early on in their career where 
their 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 business is is making more than you know they need to pay their mortgage and do their shops at Costco and do a trip to Mexico. Like their their basic needs are met. There's a little bit of a surplus. Um, how would you coach people to think about this question? Do I take that surplus and I pay my personal mortgage off as quickly as possible so that I can then start, at, you know, I can then refill the cash reserves to go do something else? Or the other option is, you know what, I'm just going to pay the minimum on my mortgage. It's going to do what it's going to do. We'll stretch this out to 25 years. And I'm going to actually build up a cash reserve over here so that I can actually go and invest faster. I mean, I know there's a lot of variables there, but how would you yeah. coach people to think through that? Well, so so in that situation, so we're not talking. We're talking like our basic needs are are met. We're not you know scratching by anymore. Um, you know, the the goal becomes how do I get as much money, uh, how much of my corporate dollars into my into my genes, right? And so you know, every every state, every province is going to have different tax laws. Um, you know, for me in order to pay my personal mortgage, I need to use personal dollars in order to do that. So I have to pay tax, uh, you know, on my, you know, income tax um, to do that. So what I would, would recommend if you can, um, you know, with your mortgage payment, for example, you know, doubling up on your mortgage payment, your monthly mortgage payment, paying it, you know, um, I think it's every two weeks or, or bi-monthly. Um, I would look at, you know, when it comes to the, your mortgage, can I do a top up every year? And, and so what I would work towards is paying down my mortgage as quickly as I possibly can um, and, and pay, my, uh, pay as little personal tax as I can because your, your asset, your personal asset is, is, for most people, it's gonna continue to grow over time. And, and for a lot of people, their home is a huge part of their retirement savings plan. Right. So I would work towards in that situation, I would work towards paying off my personal mortgage. And from there, you know, you have a couple of different options. Right. We talked about RSPs or, or 401ks. Um, again, if this, this is this is if you have the wealth to do so, um, you could say, hey, you know what? I want to buy a vacation property and I want to put you know, my cash into there. And so that becomes another investment for you. And the beauty of that investment is that you can actually use it. Mm. Right. So I. You know, look at a vacation home and, and, and look at its value as it grows over time. Um, and, and, and then, you know, think about, hey, I can actually enjoy this, right? Mm -hmm. So um, that to me would be, uh, you know, a, a good move. Um, you know, additionally, you know, another way to do that is, is so you, 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 you pay off your personal mortgage and then you work towards, um, you know, buying an office building where you can, or a warehouse or something like that, where you can actually host your business. Um, you know, and then again, you work off paying that and, and all the while, while you do this, you want to put, you want to be able to, um, you know, for me, I want to have uh, the ability to put a line of credit against those assets. Now, I think it lines of credit um, is, is very valuable for our businesses um, because they give us a sense of security. They give us, um, you know, a, a buffer for, for difficult times. And allow us to sleep a little bit better at night. But a line of credit is also a bit like crack cocaine. Like once you start to use it, you'll start using it more and more and more. And if, if you're going to use your line of credit a ton, you may as well have a, uh, you know, you may as well have a mortgage against your home and pull cash out of it because, you know, your line of credit rates are not going to be as good as your mortgage rates. So, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, long term, like we got to think about you know, how do we, how do we take the wealth that we've built in our businesses and transition those into our personal 
uh, lives. And, and those are a couple of different strategies that I would recommend using. Is there anything that you can say about that all-important question of extracting pre-tax dollars into post-tax dollars in an efficient way? Or is it is it just too technical and too nuanced and go talk to a tax strategist? Well, I, I mean, I definitely would recommend you talk to your accountant or, or tax strategist. But I mean, because and, and Benji, every everyone that listens to this is going to have a, a different rule, um, you know, depending on where they live. Right? Yeah. Like I know in Canada, we pay our tax structures, you know, whether Insane. you're an S, you know, in, in the States, it's S corps and C corps. And, you know, in Canada, we're, you know, we're sole proprietors or we're, you know, we have our own uh, corporations that, you know, for me, it just, you know, being Canadian here, you know, I, I pay myself the minimum salary that I can in order to take advantage of, um, you know, my, my pension and, and low um, income tax rates. Um, you know, there's, as business owners, there's some ability to pay our, our spouses, right? Um, you know, they do have to prove that they are actively involved in the business. Um, and then there's, there's, uh, there's income splitting as well. Um, that's a lot harder now than it used to be. Um, but yeah, you're, you know, you're going to pay yourself a, a salary, you're gonna pay your, your wife a salary. And then on top of that, you're going to have some sort of form of dividends. Yeah. Um, you know, and in, in terms of the amounts and, and sort of the specifics there, like you really got to talk to your accountant, yeah. but I recommend talking to your accountant. Yeah. Those are dollars well spent. Um, I know their, their time is expensive, but over the long haul, some of this stuff can, yeah. can really, uh, get you ahead. What are your thoughts on short-term rentals? Just, I know that's kind of a, a bit of an out there question. Um, but you know, like d does that, d are those, should those be an appealing thing for people to look at? Or is this, you know, maybe a more of a trend investment that's hit its peak and is on the way down? Well, I mean, a short-term rental uh, can be an awesome investment. Um, you have to look into this, but I, I, I'm pretty sure where we are here in the province of British Columbia, um, and, and, and so if we're doing it here, this is probably going to happen in other places as well. Um, like Airbnb is no longer an option depending on where you live. So it's a great option. Um, if you can do it, if you're allowed to do it, um, because you can generate a lot of, uh, income through those rentals, um, you know, pays off the mortgage and cash flows, you know, you're, you're building your asset uh, pool. Um, but I just would be really careful, uh, where you are, make sure you understand the type of government that that's in control. And, um, you know, there, I, I forget what the, the number is, but it uh, very shortly here, our ability to do that here in Vancouver, um, and is uh, over here in the Fraser Valley is, is going to be diminished. I think they've made a couple, I mean, this isn't relevant for all of our listeners in the States and stuff, but they made a couple exemptions in a few metropolitan centers where they do get a lot of tourism, but it is, it doesn't matter. The point is. It's quite fascinating at the stroke of a pen, you know, a mm -hmm. small policy decision, you know, how many tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of short-term short-term investment uh, or STR investors, I should say, are just kind of sitting there like with their hands in the air going, what? Like I spent this yeah. much to buy this thing and now you're telling me I can't? It's just, it's, it's a humbling moment, I think, to realize how powerful some of the powers that be are and you are left scrambling to figure, you know, what to do now with this four-bedroom house you bought in Penticton or whatever. Uh, it's wild. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Um, anything else you would you would say about um, finding success? I mean, okay, our listeners are going to be 
you know, dotted all over the map. There's going to be some guys in Toronto. There's going to be some some contractors in Seattle. There's going to be some uh, contractors in in you know Kansas. There's gonna, they're all over, and they, they'd be in all all different types of markets. Y- you and I both live and operate in an extremely inflated one here in British Columbia. Is there any commentary you'd give around finding success in what feels just where the floor is so high, the cost to get in is already so high. I mean, I have friends in Texas who, you know, can buy a ranch for $480,000. I have friends in Saskatoon who own, you know, small low rises for under a million. It's just like the numbers just don't make sense to us here in these really expensive markets. Do you have any commentary, any wisdom for how to find success where the prices are already really, really high? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, the reason why the prices are, are really high in, in places like Vancouver and Toronto and New York and San Francisco and, and, and these different places is because the, these cities are really attractive to live in and their values continue to improve. Right. So you can go buy, uh, you know, a home in, in um, you know, um, Springfield, Missouri or, uh, you know, Edmonton, Alberta. And, you know, you can buy, you know, that ranch for, you know, I don't know. Um, what you would pay for a single family home here in, in Vancouver. Um, the, the problem is, is that that asset most likely won't increase in value. It actually might even decrease in value if you take inflation into the mix. Mm. Whereas if you buy in these more expensive markets, they typically outperform you know, the, the, these other markets because people just naturally want to live there. And I got some advice from, um, you know, a long-term uh, investor guy here in Vancouver years ago. And he says to me, he's like, you know, when it comes to where you buy, you want to make sure that you buy on the highest point of the island. It, when the flood comes and the markets change, and they do, inevitably markets will come and go and there will be challenges. You want to make sure that you stay dry. You want to make sure that your asset is as well protected as it possibly can be. So while it can be difficult to get in to these expensive markets, as far as investments, uh, they, they, they stand the test of time, mm. right? And they continue to improve in value and they continue to, to, to increase. And, and I think, you know, as, as, you know, whether it be, um, you know, a young person or someone who's just, you know, trying to get into the market right now, um, you know, we have to think through things a little bit differently, right? If we want to own a home, um, how are we going to do that? Are we going to do that on a single income? You know, probably unless not. you've got, pro- yeah, probably not. So, you know, you might want to think it through, well, how can I do this with, with a group of people? I, you know, maybe, maybe you're married and, you, and you've got a brother who's also married and it's like, Hey, let's, let's take our incomes. Let's take our cash. Let's buy something together. You know, uh, put a five-year plan together. Uh, we're going to renovate it at the same time while we're living there. And, you know, in five years, we'll have built up, you know, I don't know, maybe each of you've got $50,000 worth of equity, or maybe, maybe more. Um, you know, and then you take that, maybe you do it again, and, and then eventually you can get to the point where you can have something of your own. So, I mean, I, we, we just got to be a little bit more creative with how we do it. Um, just because it's expensive doesn't mean it's a bad investment. Um, I'd actually strongly caution, you know, investing in markets where uh, appreciation, home value appreciation is low. Um, there's definitely markets out there where a home value appreciation is under inflation, mm-hmm. right? So if you think about it, you know, you buy it and you sell it 10 years later, you've actually lost money. Mm-hmm. So, um, and there's also, you know, you got to think through, um, you know, there, there's taxes associated with buying and selling land. There's real estate commissions associated with it. Uh, so there's a number of different things that you really want to take into account when you're, you know, moving and flipping properties. 
Justin, how has like how has becoming a sophisticated real estate investor over the years actually made your business game better? I mean, you would kind of think of these in two different avenues. One is investment, one is you know, strategy and operations and leadership, but I think they're quite, they're kind of tied to each other. Have you, have you reflected on uh, how, you know, just going through these, these deals year over year over year has actually improved your business tool belt too? Well, we, we talked about the vertical integration of the investment and what I do, right? So, so simply for me building the product that I, um, you know, am able to, invest in has has made me really involved in it right we talked about uh being able to add value um you know as a business if i'm able to add value to a product that's going to sell uh either to you know that i'm going to sell myself or that i'm going to build for another person and that they're going to sell um you know i'm adding value uh or i'm learning to how i can add value um for my customers that, that are that i'm not you know where i'm building for other people right so you know i i, I mentioned too right like if, if if you have the opportunity to renovate a home that you're going to move into yourself, um, you're going to learn a whole lot of things about a home and why it's built the way that it is. Right. So, you know, there, there's, there's definitely that. And I think, you know, also, you know, trying to add value to our, you know, our employees. Right. So uh, for us, we're constantly, you know, one of, one of the big goals for most young people as they're coming up in their career is, is home ownership. Right. Um, so we're able to create opportunities for uh, young people that are, you know, looking to to buy homes, right? So we have a pretty good understanding of where the market is, how much they should pay, uh, where they should buy, you know, what are the deals. Um, so so we have a, a pretty good um, handle on that as well. And I think when you're able to help your employees, it creates loyalty as well. So um, mm. yeah, and I don't know, we're we're adding we're we're helping people build life skills, right? Um, you know. Uh, teaching people how to to maintain and build homes uh, for themselves is something that, you know, sometimes we as contractors take uh, for granted. So mm, mm. Yeah. this is like you're talking about like what caliber projects actually does for its employees. Yeah. In terms of the skill development, the the critical thinking, like helping them get into the market. That's something that you really take pride in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, real, real quick, uh, Benjamin, it's not necessarily part of this topic, but, you know, we, we practice open book management here at Caliber. And, and so we're, you know, our employees get to see our income statement on a monthly basis. And they're encouraged to come up with ways of, of you know, either uh, cutting costs or increasing revenue. And um, these are skills that are really applicable to their own lives as well. Right. So, you know, we, we, we may not think about it this way, but we all have a personal income statement as well, right? Like, you know, cash coming in, whether that be through our paycheck or through some passive income source or who knows what. Um, and then we have our expenses. And, you know, as, as business owners, I think we have an obligation to help our employees, you know, not just not just pay them, but also help them to understand how they can um, stretch the dollars that they do have and how they can, you know, do more with less. Mm. I, I think it's such, a, it's such an interesting comment. It's a theme that we kind of hit on a lot on this podcast it's like the 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 duty the responsibility the onus um of teaching this next generation of of tradespeople and youngsters some of the stuff they need to know how to do to navigate in the world today 
for better or for worse, is kind of on the backs of small business owners. I mean, I don't think our education system is doing it. It doesn't seem like most ho- households are doing it. No, you know, so many young men and women don't have mentors to look up to, and it's it's it's. I think I think there's a real point of pride here that a lot of that a lot of business owners can take, where it's like if you are investing in training, investing in education, investing in your people, um, that's a really noble thing to do because I don't think that that many other institutions are doing that for those people. And so it's just it's just I don't know, it's it's a feel good moment, so, something to think about. Um, we got to wrap here, Justin. But are there any other like resources, books, things that you would really encourage someone? You know, if you think of a young contractor, you know, 30, 40, you know, like they're they're kind of they're working their way through this and they want to take this seriously. What would be, uh, you know, some books, some resources, podcasts, whatever for them to go and spend some time with? Yeah. So there, there's a book. Um, it's called uh, Real Estate Investing in Canada by Don Campbell. Um, I don't, you don't have to be Canadian to get a lot out of it. Um, it's, a, it's a bit of a read, it's a bit of a um, bit technical, um, but if you're looking at you know, uh, buying homes and um, you know, looking at, at finding homes that are gonna be income generating and cash flow, you know, and, and, and you know, finding a way to, to repeat that method, um, Don's got a great book there. Um, strongly recommend that. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of books on on financial management, and and most of what we're talking about really is financial management. And you know, there's the uh, there's the wealthy barber, there's rich dad, poor dad, there's uh, I don't know. You yeah. guys probably have tons. But of I, I would so, shout out to uh, the guys at Bigger Pockets. They've done a really good job with their podcast and their whole content brand. Uh, we've actually like tried to emulate a lot of the stuff that they've done here with Contractor Evolution, just on a completely different subject matter. So, I, I think most people listening would be familiar with with uh, with that brand already, but they're a good place to look. Um, <clears throat> if people want to follow you, follow Caliber Projects. Where's the best place to do that, Justin? Uh, the best way to do that would just be through LinkedIn. So we've we focused all of our efforts um, uh, from a social media perspective on LinkedIn. So you can look up Caliber Projects uh, on LinkedIn, or you can look myself up. Um, yeah, we have a website, caliberprojects.com. You can ch- cool. come check it out there as I well. I just checked it out. It's great. Lots of video. You guys did a good job with that. Dude, thank you so much for your time. Uh, you're a busy guy. I really appreciate you giving us like a very holistic, very balanced walkthrough of what is involved, some of the upside, some of the downside, how you look at deals and, and just sharing a bit of your story. So I thank you so much for your time, Justin. We really appreciate you having you. You bet. Thank you. Thanks so much for watching this episode of Contractor Evolution. If you've already subscribed to our channel, consider sharing this episode with another contractor who you think needs to hear it. Paynet podcasts are produced by the Painting Contractors Association and are made possible by members and industry partners. To find out more about upcoming education opportunities or for more information about joining PCA, visit PCAPainted.org. 